When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. Thank you for joining us as we kick off season 11 of our Trashy Little Show. Holy cats. We got so much trash candy coming up for you on Sundays and Trashy Divorces and Wednesdays with Trashy Breakups. This week, Stacy, you're starting us with just narrowly missed being a Trashy Divorces all-star, but maybe the story's worth making him one on his own anyway. Hey, he's not dead yet. It's Phil Collins. You don't know. He might pull this out yet. Yeah, he's had uh, three proper divorces, paid out tens of millions of dollars in them, had to raise a private army almost to steal his home back. So it's That's just, Cooper, there's man. a lot of things. He's got a lot of things. All right, who do you have? This week, I'm wrapping up with the last of the Kennedy kids that we have not yet talked about. Ted Kennedy and his wife, Joan Bennett Kennedy. It's tragedy. It's tragedy yeah, all not, around. Not the most funny story that you've ever <laughs> presented. But it is a portrait of the demise of a marriage. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what trashy divorce is all about. Good stories both. Indeed. Before we get started, let's give some thanks and praise to our newest Patreon supporters who are getting early and ad-free episodes and dumpster dive and spider webs and all the different series they got a magic mirror. Zoom calls. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun over there. So you can join us there at patreon.com slash trashy divorces if you choose. And thank you so much for joining us. Chris S., Jessica W., Laura S., Erica G., Deanna D., Eliza C., Chrissy T., Lucy H., Ellen W., Sean T., Karen D. Thank y'all. I'm so happy to see your names in the magic mirror. Thank you for your support over on Patreon. Got a couple super supporters. We do. Crystal M and Kelly O. Holy cats. Thanks, y'all. Yup. Can't wait to see you on our next live Zoom call mm-hmm. that happens on our super supporter level. I think that's it. I just want to get to this story because it's so good. What should we do? Uh, maybe we should go, go, go. So, Stacey, you're dropping some beats today. I have Mr. Susu Studio himself, Phil Collins. Little drummer boy. Yes, yes. Friends, if you were alive in the 80s, you heard a lot of Phil Collins' music, whether you wanted to or not. (laughs) As the post-Peter Gabriel face of the band Genesis, starting in 1975 to massive solo success with albums like 1985's No Jacket Required, there was a good run of years where the guy was everywhere. Like literally everywhere. He very famously performed at Bob Geldof's 1985 Live Aid benefit, which was simultaneously held in the US and the UK. Phil started the day with a few songs at London's Wembley Stadium. Then he hopped on the Concorde, where he flew to Philadelphia for a second set, an act that he now says was definitely a bit of showing off. But you watched it. Every kid in America, Mm -hmm. we woke up Yep. At the butt crack. And it was the, oh, we talked about it for ages and ages. Mm-hmm. Yes, his incredibly high profile and massive success was not without backlash. Phil Collins was a guy who would call up and argue with a writer who gave him a bad review. 
Uh-huh. Um, music writers on both sides of the Atlantic have documented what one described as Phil fatigue, and that's fatigue with a PH. Oh. Phil fatigue. A lot of old school Genesis diehards felt that the musical direction the band took after Peter Gabriel left was, as they say, selling out. He's a polarizing figure whose workaholism and music career has frequently collided with his personal life, which has included a ton of rumored or acknowledged situations from affairs to allegedly dumping his second wife via fax to being dumped by his third wife via text to nearly needing to raise an army to retake his waterfront Miami home from her. It got weird. (laughs) It did get very weird. It's been quite the journey. So let's get into the genesis of Phil. Philip David. I saw what you did there. That was funny. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) thanks. Philip David Charles Collins came into the world on January 30th, 1951 in Chiswick, England. He was a surprise baby with two older siblings. He was the son of an upright insurance salesman, like his own father had been before him. They expected Phil to become an insurance salesman. Family tradition. Mm -hmm. And a theatrical agent. Maybe she was less committed to the insurance salesman thing. Anyway. He was a perfectionist from a young age, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be a three-year-old perfectionist, but apparently they (laughs) spotted it early. Things just had to be so. When he was five years old, someone who undoubtedly disliked his parents a lot gave him a drum kit. Wow. I kid. (laughs) The parents were apparently fairly supportive of him drumming because he took lessons and all that. So at 14, under his mother's tutelage, the theater agent, he began taking acting lessons after he had played the Artful Dodger in a major production of Oliver. Oh, I could see how that would be very good casting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was music that held his attention. In his later teens, he was drumming professionally. He even sat in for a session with George Harrison once, although his drum track was not used. Someone else's was. So this would ultimately turn into a prank. Um, Many years later... Phil would bump into George Harrison again, and for some reason, he said to the Beatle, Nope. Nobody. Hey, George, when that song came out, that wasn't my drum track on it. Why was that? And George Harrison is like, dude, I don't remember. Like, I don't know, mate. I have had a million recording sessions. I have no idea why we didn't use yours. But he sent along to Phil oh, no. the master tape of the session, just as a memento. And Phil Collins gets this, like, ooh, George Harrison sent me a present. Like, he opens it up and he pops it in a player. Oh, no. And the drumming is absolutely terrible. (gasps) Just terrible. And Phil Collins, perfectionist, really committed to doing a great job, is just appalled. So he calls George Harrison. And it's like, George, I had no idea. I am so sorry that I performed so poorly. And George Harrison starts cracking up. And he's like... Dude, we made that the other day. That's not a real thing. (laughs) Anyway. Perhaps he'd heard of Phil Fatigue. Don't harass a beetle. (laughs) 1970. Young Phil goes to the home of Peter Gabriel's parents. (gasps) Yeah, Peter Gabriel's not yet famous. Anyway, to audition for a role in an aspiring band called Genesis. So Genesis had been formed by a bunch of prep school lads in about 1967. And after they'd all completed school, several of them wanted to get very serious about music. Several of them didn't, so they needed a drummer. For the next several years, Genesis turned into a rising star in the prog rock universe 
with Phil pounding the drums in the back. And then in 1975, Peter Gabriel left. They, I think they held auditions for like 400 people. And ultimately Whoa. they were like, Phil, I think it's you. I think you need to be our singer now. So, Nothing like being your first choice. <laughs> um, so that same year, Phil Collins got hitched. Hey, congrats. Ooh. Everything's cool. So uh, his wife, we will learn shortly, is not a public person and does not wish to be a public person today. And I think even then. So I'm just going to call her Andy because okay. that is that is her nickname. So they had known each other since they were kids. They went to drama class together. So he's got a memoir that came out in 2016 called Not Dead Yet. And he says that as a teenager, she was one of two classmates in high school that he, or in the school that he dated, they would kind of all swap it. You know how teenagers are. Like, I'm mad at him. Well, I'll go out with him. Like, you know how it is. Okay. So he had not seen Andy in several years, but their families had stayed in touch and her family had moved to Vancouver, British Columbia. 1974, Genesis rolls into Vancouver for a show, and Phil calls her up and is like, hey, you and your family, come see us play. It's cool. We're Genesis. We're famous now. (laughs) So he says that by the time the band left Vancouver a few days later, he and Andy were back together. They were 23. They got married at 24. In love. By this point, she had a daughter from a prior relationship, and Phil will end up adopting that daughter. Oh, good. Um, Okay. But basically, once Genesis had a break, Phil, Andy, and her daughter regrouped in the UK, where, over time, Andy would deal with the horror of being a rock star wife to a maniac workaholic musician who never stopped writing, playing, recording, and touring. Who's also a perfectionist. Who's also a perfectionist. (laughs) A perfectionist maniac rock star workaholic. Yeah. Perfect. 1976, Andy gave birth to their son which Phil says he was there for, but then had to race back to the tour for like the next year. Wow. So Andy's home with a baby and a toddler, and she is getting less and less impressed with her choice in a mate and life partner. In the book, he says neither of them were coping well and notes that since they got together, like he had gone from being a drummer in the back to being the front person. And Genesis had gone from being this cult darling to like, a really enormous band. Yeah, a yeah. really well-known kind of mainstream rock band. So I will say that the story that Phil tells in his book about the end of the marriage, which saw Andy move back to Vancouver, then him following her for a few months, then both of them giving up, does not sound unreasonable. However, one of his claims is that Andy had an affair which prompted a banger of a statement from Andy in 2016. Oh, goody. And a threat of litigation. (sighs) Mm -hmm. So she says, For a number of years, I have been the subject of comments made in the media about my relationship with my former husband, Phil Collins. I have variously been portrayed as a homewrecker, a gold digger, and a bad mother. The recent publication of Phil's autobiography, Not Dead Yet, is the final straw. The book contains a number of wholly false statements about myself and my marriage to Phil, which have not only seriously damaged my reputation, but have also caused me considerable distress. I am mm. a private person and have never sought the limelight, even during my marriage to Phil. However, these attacks on my character and integrity are such that I feel compelled to take legal action. So she's instructed her solicitors to look into that. Um, she... <laughs> concludes, I wish to make clear, I divorced Phil Collins on the grounds of his adultery. The grounds for divorce were not contested. Wow. 
Sandy. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's divorce number one. Okay. It's worth noting that when Phil came back to London in 1979, marriage over, he wrote a lot of music as he was working through all of this stuff. His feelings. Mm-hmm. 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 So in the air tonight, which includes lines like, if you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. Good stuff. And wipe off that grin. I know where you've been. It's all been, been a, a pack, pack of lies. Also, his Grammy winning and Oscar nominated song, Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now, was written during this period. And we will have more on that shortly. Every middle school dance oh, yeah. ever. We did. We played in our kitchen the other day and middle school danced to Against All Odds just because yes. we could. Well, and you told me about the internet mythology that arose around in the air tonight about how like what it was really about was child phil collins standing on a cliff well below a friend was drowning in the water and there was a man there who didn't save him and years later he writes the song and invites the man to the show in the spotlight no that's about his divorce it's about his divorce but it was he's mad at his ex-wife where we talked about uh, no scrubs yes not being about dave coulier <laughs> This in the air tonight rumor was the thing in the eighties. Yeah, if I heard it's about the it, I'd, for, I'd forgotten. Of yeah, the eighties. It's not a thing. Yeah, and Phil Collins has said repeatedly, not, "It's not a not, thing." Did not have a maid but who drowned when I was a kid. Took on this. I mean, you can see him in his coat and the guy. I mean, he's on the cliff, and then there's the guy just callously watching his best friend. Oh. Anyway, none of that's true. Phil Collins working through anger at his ex-wife. These things happen. It's all been a pack of lies. Luckily for Phil, he was not destined to be alone for long. (laughs) One night in 1980, the band was playing in Los Angeles, and after playing their show, he joined one of the managers, who was also going through a divorce, for a trip to the Rainbow Room on the Sunset Strip. Why not? Why not? A woman approached him. She was very excited. She knew who he was. A woman recognized him. Anyway, they start talking. And, you know, they're in town for a few days, so they go out a couple times, and everything's going good. This is Jill Tavelman, who is then 24, American, and the woman who would become wife number two just a short few years later. As with his first marriage, his second marriage will also sort of coincide with his career just, like, jumping to a different level. Oh, my. Which I don't think was foreseen, right? Like, he got married because he was in love. And that, but he's also a workaholic musician who, anyway, his professional life is really going to blow up right around this time. By 1981, Jill is living with him in England. He's putting out his first solo album, Face Value. And he has a really clear intention of reaching the American market in a way that Genesis has not yet been able to. Okay. And that makes sense. I mean, we all know that Genesis ended up doing fine in America right. in the 80s, but but that's still to come. Meanwhile... The music played on, both solo and with Genesis, and Jill, who didn't have a baby to care for, was able to travel with him a lot, so, like, their relationship was going well. I mean, she would just join him on the road. On August 4, 1984, they married, and they had a baby girl in 1989. This marriage will end very poorly in the mid-90s, but first let me share a tidbit of Phil Collins from that monumental year, 1984, which would spill over into a monumental 1985. In February 84, he releases the song Against All Odds, which is the main theme for the movie of the same name. Right. 
This means that when the Hollywood Academy takes its votes for the 1985 Oscars, or the Oscars that are held in 1985, Phil picks up an Oscar nomination for the song. Super exciting. Congrats, man. You'll be surprised to learn that he's touring during this time. So he reschedules his tour so that he can be in, he's like touring Australia. So he makes time in a schedule to be in LA for the ceremony so he can perform his song and like connect with an America, a huge American television that audience. Totally makes live sense. Perform- like, it's going to be awesome. Yes. His people reach out to the producers of the Oscars. And whatever Oscar producer they're in contact with is not familiar with Phil Collins. A note comes back explaining that they don't have space in the lineup for Phil Cooper. Oh, no. Thanks for reaching out. Oh, Phil Cooper. In his book, he says it was addressed to Mr. Paul Collins. So <laughs> you get the gist of what's going on. So they tell, oh. they tell his people, apparently, that they're, they're going to change it up. The Oscars are changing it up that year, and they're going to get people from film and Broadway, like movie people, to perform because it's a movie event. Okay. Well, no. So Phil is in the auditorium for the Oscars. Oh, no. As famed Broadway choreographer Anne Rain King kind of butchers the song with a weird dance element to it. Oh, no. The experience is made even more painful as he watches Denise Williams perform her song from Footloose, Let's Hear It for the Boy, And Ray Parker Jr. gets up to perform Ghostbusters. And then Stevie Wonder won for, uh, I just called to say, I love you. Poor Phil Cooper. What a time in music. Mr. Paul Collins was mad. Oh, I bet he was mad. Mm -hmm. Yes, the perfectionist was denied his opportunity to. It just sucks. Like, this, this genuinely does suck. And I do feel for him. That does not explain what happened the next morning. Oh, no. What happened the next morning? Here's how Rolling Stone explained what happened the next morning from a 2016 article. And all of our notes, as always, are on TrashyDivorces.com. It was awful, he said of Rain King's performance. But I'm glad I didn't sing the song now after what they did to Ray Parker. I don't know. (laughs) I don't actually know what they did to Ray Parker, but anyway. He then turned his attention to Stevie Wonder. Quote, he is one of my heroes, but I have serious doubts about whether or not that song was actually written for the film. Then he goes on to say, why Stevie Wonder won the award? No. Quote, this is bad. He's blind, black, lives in LA, and does a lot for human rights. Unquote. Oh my God. I'm just trying to include the trashy bits here. Phil Cooper. Phil Cooper has done a lot of charitable work over the years. And anyway, he was mad. He was real mad. Okay. You think he closes his eyes at night and sees that ballet routine? You know, I he he very well may. On CBS Sunday morning in 2016, to coincide with his book coming out, he does mention in that interview that he can't play the piano for Against All Odds. And it, like he would have to relearn it if he were to want to perform it. He sings it, but I think he I th- I think that song means something very negative to him now in a way that anyway. Poor baby. <clears throat> So speaking of trashy, we're going to jump ahead to August 1994 for a story from People Magazine called Dropping the Axe via Fax. (laughs) No burying the lead in that one. Here we go. It will probably be remembered as the first transcontinental celebrity divorced by fax, but that was only one of many bizarre twists in the breakup of rock royal Phil Collins and his wife of 10 years, Jill Tappelman. 
The drums began beating on Fleet Street early last month when Collins, 43, the Genesis percussionist and solo star known as Rock's Mr. Nice Guy for his work with British Charities, began telling audiences during his U.S. concert tour of a romantic encounter he'd had with an old girlfriend. (gasps) Yeah. What? Yeah. Just on stage? Just right there? Apparently so. Phil Cooper. Bad Paul Collins. People continues, back home in their red brick West Sussex mansion, Tavelman, 38, struck back by accusing Collins of putting his career before his family. According to Tavelman, their five-year-old daughter, Lily, hasn't seen her father for two months. She keeps weeping, I want my daddy. Phil sends her faxes, but I know she'd rather hear his voice. Phil doesn't phone because he has to save his voice for the next day. People continues, then presumably also in the interest of protecting his famous pipes, Collins informed Tavelman by fax that he wanted a divorce. Oh, I mean, that is one way to avoid the talking about it. By July 15, he had issued a public statement proclaiming bluntly, I am not in love with my partner anymore. The rapper, oh my God, just talk. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> The rocker also spoke of having had an affair with the pivotal woman in my teenage years. That's a quote. Press reports later identified... Was this the other girlfriend? Mm -hmm. Press reports later identified her as Lavinia Lang, 43, who had attended theater school with him in London. Oh, I bet Andy hit the roof when Andy found out about this. They were briefly engaged to be married. They broke up and Collins later married another classmate, Andy. According to press reports, Lang and Collins later had a tryst when the band was touring Germany. Lavinia's stepfather, Fred, told reporters that she and Collins have always carried a torch for one another, adding, it's a classic love story as old as Adam and Eve. But Lavinia, a former dancer who now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their two children. Oh my Jesus. No. Denied the affair. But he just told 80,000 people at the show. Her husband is quoted, Lavinia and I are very much in love and we plan to be together the rest of our lives. Please tell Phil Collins that. Oh my God. You know, People Magazine doesn't always hit it out of the park. (laughs) But when they do. (laughs) Grand slam. Okay, so Phil... Unbelievable. Phil has insisted ever since this happened that he did not use a fax machine to tell his wife that the marriage was over. (laughs) Because <laughs> that's not even the worst part of what has happened. <laughs> Truly not. However, on September 30th, 1994, on the front cover of the Sun tabloid in England, no. the headline blared, Phil, I'm faxing furious. Apparently, <laughs> Jill had turned over a four or five page long fax to them, which they published. Oh, my. Very bad. So, yeah, Rock's Mr. Nice Guy. Who, like, the Queen has awarded him for his works with charities. Like, it's... He had to save his voice. Yeah. I mean, he might, like, now we email. I mean, he's like, look, I wrote a letter. And you can mail a letter or you can put a letter into this machine and it sends it right away. Like, so that's what I did. That's just sounded dirty in the 90s. Yeah, It really, really does. Now it sounds antiquated but in the 90s faxing was super dirty yeah he says that his reputation has actually never really recovered from this he's can't imagine why like in 02 he told the the radio times uh i'm still lumbered with it (laughs) 
Jill would end up with a 17 million pound settlement when everything was finalized in 1996. But this would not be the biggest payout Phil Collins would make to an ex-wife. Oh, no. We've still got one to go or even one and a half to go. April 1994. Obviously, Phil is still married. Presumably, the affair with Lavinia is over, though. Anyway, he meets Oriane Sevi when she was his interpreter and guide at a show in Lausanne, Switzerland. Okay. She had graduated from college at 19 and was working at an investment firm at the time. And, and like, she wasn't a professional interpreter and guide, but they had a mutual friend and knew they're she... They're going to help you out. Yeah. yeah, she spoke... She speaks five languages and apparently speaks perfect English, so... Off she goes to pick up Phil Collins at the airport. Does the sign say Phil Cooper? (laughs) Okay, sorry. Paul Collins. Obviously, he was still married to Jill at this point, but, you know, a couple of dalliances with a long-ago ex and whatever other water had flowed under the bridge had kind of apparently turned that into a formality. Whether or not Jill knew that, I don't know, Phil. This is not great. Of meeting Orianne, Phil said in 02, she met us off the plane, took us to the hotel, and by the time we'd got there, I'd fallen for her. Oh, no. Hey, shocking news. Um, Mid-40s, Phil Collins is now in love with a 21-year-old Swiss woman. So that's a story literally never told before in the history of mankind. Anyway, he moved to Switzerland in 1995 to be with her, although many in England interpreted this as a tax avoidance scheme, which added to his increasingly tarnished image there. Like, he had a rough run of years here. Still... Everything Phil did was bad. He kind of, I guess he made some comments in the press about like, if labor come in and raise taxes, it's going to be bad or whatever. So he kind of got tarred as like, oh, he's this crazy right winger. (laughs) And then moves to Switzerland. And then moves to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So on July 24, 99, they get married. They would have two sons together. But uh, this is a period, like Phil's health has, there are a variety of things that follow here. So Phil suddenly loses his hearing in one ear. It partially returns later. But yeah, there was a viral infection. So he was really forced to slow down. So he's spending a lot more time in Switzerland, less time on the road. He says it's a really great time in his life. Like he's a parent to his baby. You know, there's, it's nice. He has family dinners with Orient's family. Like what his first two wives would have wished he had done. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This was uh, also the Phil Collins era of writing music for Disney movies like Tarzan and Brother Bear. And, you know, being a husband and father in a present way for the first time. A lot of the old Genesis people look at this Disney phase as like, are you kidding me? I mean, but good good on him. Sure. Exploring new things. Hey, there's nothing wrong with scoring films. No. By 2004, he'd had a couple years to accommodate to the hearing loss, and he decides that now is a good time for him to exit the world of like touring musician on his own terms. So now in his 50s, he tells his 31-year-old wife that he is putting together a farewell tour and is going <laughs> to retire at the end of it. She's pregnant with their second, so the tour spans a couple of years, which allow him to be home uh, kind of for a long time for the birth and the first months of uh, his latest child's life. But Orianne is imagining spending her 30s and beyond doing nothing alongside her much older husband, who's apparently planning to do absolutely nothing. And this does not appeal to Orianne. They have a tough couple of years of coming apart, and then she files for divorce after the tour ends in 2006. After which time Phil will pay her 25 million pounds. Whoa. A record 
in British divorce wars, and even more than Paul McCartney had paid out to Heather Mills, the previous and then recent most expensive divorce ever. Phil, always gotta be going one up, man. He's a perfectionist. You can't beat him. Why are you trying to mess with a beetle? (laughs) Got some history here. Okay, so the post-divorce period was really bad for Phil. He loses sensation in one arm, and as a drummer, that is oh God, very bad. That's terrible. So this, there are several surgeries. There's very long recoveries from those. He's completely laid up. He's newly divorced. His kids are, you know, close by, but he's not living with his kids. And uh, he can't work. So to pass the time, he discovers alcohol in a whole new oh, way. no. No. Yeah. So he says, you know, it took me to 55 to be an alcoholic, but he he gets into a body-destroying pattern with booze. And also around this time, Oriane has told him that she plans to move with the boys and her new husband to Miami. And at this point, like, his first wife went to Vancouver, his second wife, first wife and kids, second wife and kid are in Los Angeles. It breaks his heart that Again, like his his family is going to end up very far away. Like he prefers Miami over LA, but that's rough. The absence of his children does not, you'll be surprised to learn, help his drinking. Yeah, no. So ultimately, Phil Collins has to be air ambulanced off of Turks and Caicos from a vacation that was supposed to be all about spending time with his kids. Their nanny, like again, like doctors wouldn't let him leave the island. He was in such poor shape with like they he couldn't fly home on his private jet. They were like, we have to air ambulance you to New York. So the nanny has to take the two boys flies into Miami and then has to like convince us customs that she is not trafficking because they don't have the same last name. These children belong to Phil Collins. Yes. She's got all this property that clearly isn't hers. Anyway, she did smuggle those children. (laughs) Nannies have a tough job. I don't think people give them enough credit. Good work, Phil Collins. Okay. So in New York, a team of doctors and therapists finally convince him how close he is to dying. Oh so they convince him to get started on antabuse, which just makes it painful to drink, like you react to small amounts of alcohol. So gradually he finds his footing, you know. Meanwhile, he's going to Miami a lot to visit the kids. He and Oriana are reconnecting. Oh my. Her marriage is not doing well. Oh no. And eventually they decide to give it another go, although they do not go so far as to remarry. They buy a family home in Miami in 2015, and by 2016, the world knows that they are back together. Reunited. That 2016 book of his ends on a very high note. His family is back together. He's sober. He's being an in-person dad to his two youngest sons. There are albums being re-released. He writes a song with Adele. A bunch of hip-hop artists are reimagining his hits and on and on. But friends, it is no longer 2016. What happened? Some things have happened. On October 18th, 2020, the UK's Mm. Sun on Sunday reported that Phil Collins found out his rekindled romance with his ex-wife was over when she sent him a text. (laughs) Telling him she had found love with another man we can exclusively reveal. The devastated drummer, 69, had no idea what third wife Orianne Sevy was planning as the pair lived together in Miami during lockdown. Oh, God. Phil got the text in July, and on August 2, Orianne secretly married part-time guitarist Thomas Bates in Las Vegas. 
according to a sensational court filing in the U.S. Oh, my God. Orianne, 46, said in the message she had, quote, found someone and I would like to try to see if I can be happy again. The revelation of the text, Kiss Off, comes decades after the ex-Genesis rocker was reportedly accused of dumping his second wife by fax. He'll never live it down. No. He's never going to live that down. Okay. No. This is where things get sticky, continuing. With- oh, now it's just now is the tapioca part of the pudding? Continuing with the son's story. Okay. Orianne and Thomas are still holed up together in Phil's 30 million pound waterfront mansion and refuse to move out despite written demands. Oh my God. Now Phil wants them thrown out in a dramatic escalation of the standoff. He has asked a judge to grant an order demanding the trespassing newlyweds and their four heavily armed guards (laughs) must quit. The document would give cops power to swoop in and arrest them if they don't. His lawyers filed the request saying, quote, an injunction is urgently needed to end an armed occupation and takeover of the Phil Collins home by his ex-girlfriend and her new husband. (laughs) This is a $40 million Biscayne Bay mansion that was once owned by Jennifer Lopez. Good Lord. So, Phil, I think we need to have a talk about the state of Florida these days and things like raising private armies to colonize land that doesn't belong to you, because I'm pretty sure that's perfectly legal in Florida. (laughs) And the correct response is to raise a bigger private army and take it back. Did you even try that? It's four guys. You can get five guys at a burger place (laughs) in the panhandle. Anyway, he has lawyers. So Orianne did not play nice in the fight over the house. She wanted 20 mil. It was going to sell for 40. She wanted half of the house. And he was like, I want you out of my house. She and Thomas had purchased a home in Las Vegas. He's like, I owe you nothing. You're married. You have another home. Get out. Yeah, we're not remarried. You already have your 25 million pound settlement. And you have a husband. Like, I am not on your hook. (laughs) No, I mean, there would be, there's no legal liability for him to be on her her hook. No. Okay. Yeah, typically when you remarry, like any, (laughs) like, spousal support payments stop. I mean, that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah, typically. Here's how page six summarized all this mess in November. It was a vintage week for the Genesis frontman after Seve, 46, contended in court that he sank into alcoholism and drug addiction during their relationship and began neglecting his hygiene, not bathing for months at a time. Collins, 69, was, quote, usually drunk by mid-morning and, quote, incapable of having sex, she proposed. Collins called Seve's claims a, quote, litany of demonstrably false, immaterial, impertinent, scandalous, and scurrilous allegations. He suggested in legal papers that her assertions are to, quote, deliberately make sensationalized and or false allegations in an effort to extort money. Wow. So, to be fully clear, Orian had spinal surgery, like in the last decade, that got botched. Something was cut that shouldn't have been cut. Oh, no. So she did have really specialized PT equipment at the home and in the pool to, she was in a wheelchair, I think for two and a half years after this, like, okay. yeah, it was a real thing. So that was part of the fight. But yeah, she also wanted 20, 20 million after he paid her 25 million. Like anyway, she didn't get the 20 million. The judge also told her to stop saying these things about Phil Collins, who apparently pretty clearly was not in the condition she was describing. All right. Since moving out, Orianne has been auctioning off various things. She apparently owns 5,000 pairs of shoes and 3,000 handbags. Oh, my God. Including various men's watches, several of Phil's gold records, and other of his (sighs) items taken from the home. 
I'm not sure whether that will or won't come back to bite her, but her representative said that she was going full Marie Kondo on things that no longer spark joy. Full Marie Kondo on things that don't belong to you. You can't sell your husband's gold record. That doesn't belong to it. does not have your name on it. She has. Wow. For his part, Phil this year is planning to be back on the road with Genesis with his son Nick on drums. Oh, that's nice. Later this year. They've had to reschedule this a few times because of COVID. He recently did a podcast, The A to Z of Phil Collins, in which he sounds lucid and normal. I mean, just... But did he sound clean? (laughs) Just kidding. There was no smell I could detect while listening, so I think it's okay. Uh, His adult kids have all gone on to be professionally successful in creative fields. You may know Lily Collins with his second wife, who currently stars in Netflix's Emily in Paris. Is that his daughter? That is his daughter. No. And I have no idea. Yeah, they all say nice things about him. You know, like his older kids are like, well, he, he wasn't around much, but when he was, he was a great dad. Good on you. So, Phil Cooper. Lots of faxing. <laughs> Phil Collins, we're awarding you 42 million trash cans. Oh my God, really? Which is reportedly how much he has paid in divorce settlements across wow. his three and a half marriages. Roughly one third of his estimated 140 million pound fortune propping up all kinds of families. That was an amazing story. Well done. And if you need some classic Phil Collins merch, I guess look at a Florida auction house. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> Phil, we wish you the best of luck. Mm-hmm. Wow. Let's take a quick break. Let's take a break. Going to come back with a different slice of the sure 21st century. Yep. Be back in a minute. There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. Not clicking with your counselor? No problem. It's free to change. BetterHelp is available worldwide and offers specialized expertise that may just not be available where you live. It's also more affordable than traditional counseling, and financial aid is available. It's just never been easier to find a licensed professional counselor who specializes in what you're working through. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 U.S. states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com trashy. Join more than 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit betterhelp.com trashy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? Or a thriller you could only read during the day? The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. So, Alicia, you're taking us back to a Camelot-adjacent tale. In kind of Camelot, I'm sure. one, of the, one of the bigger tragedies of Camelot. Sure, everything's wonderful because it's a Kennedy story. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about one of the Kennedys in Trachy Divorces. We talked about Patricia Kennedy and her divorce from Peter Lawford many moons ago. But there's another divorce in the Kennedy family saga that we're going to talk about today. The Trashy Divorce, Teddy and Joan. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Want to give a big thanks to Melissa O for her research lift on this. As always, if you're looking for sources that we use to compile and tell our stories, you will find them on TrashyDivorces.com. Let's get into it. Edward Moore Kennedy, also known as Teddy, was born February 22nd, 1932. He is the ninth and youngest child, born to Joseph Patrick Kennedy and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. Most Americans can easily picture the wealthy, famous, and enormous Irish Catholic clan in their mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Teddy grows up traveling between the family homes in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and Palm Beach, Florida. He'll spend time in England. He'll travel through Europe while his father was the United States ambassador to the court of St. James in London. A little bit of imago here growing up. Teddy, the youngest doesn't quite live up to the successes of his three older brothers. He rarely earns higher than B's or C's in school and has a number of violations in school and life <laughs> that were swept under the rug by his wealthy and influential and powerful father, Joe Sr. <clears throat> Villain. <laughs> Not a good dude. Like all Kennedy men, Ted will attend and graduate from Harvard, but... His time at Harvard was not without some complications. He was actually expelled for cheating, but was given the opportunity to reapply a year later. Wow. Yeah. In 1951, At Teddy, least no one was doing special favors for them. I mean, no, never, never. There's no, no, no accommodations. A Kennedy? In 1951, Teddy's going to enlist in the Army, where he will stay for about 21 months. The Korean War is happening during his time in the military, but... Daddy Joe makes sure that Teddy is not ever going to be put in harm's way. So Teddy was stationed as an honor guard in Paris, which is, I guess, 
not a bad place to spend the Korean War. After his service in the military, it's time for Teddy to go to law school. But because of his low grades, Harvard Law, it's like, no, can't do it. Your Kennedy name can't even make that happen. So instead, Teddy will attend the University of Virginia Law School, where he'll graduate kind of the middle of his class, 1959. Now, when we talk about Imago, poor Teddy does endure. He's the youngest kid. So he is around for eight older brothers and sisters all growing up and being adults and having lives and their and the tragedies that occur in the Kennedy family. The tragic death of older brother Joe Jr. The tragic death of his sister Kick, as well as the loss of his oldest sister Rosemary because Joe Sr. decided to pull her in for the botched lobotomy. It is hard to say what the impact of these tragedies had on Teddy, but I do know that one thing that did really affect him was the death of Rosemary because Rosemary was around a lot and they were really close. And Teddy grows up sort of thinking, if I'm bad, they're going to send me away like Rosemary. No one's explained to a child, botched lobotomy, your sister's in an institute. Like, if I'm bad, they're going to, they're going to send me away too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all terrible. The impact of family tragedies, as well as being a trust fund kid, Teddy sort of becomes careless and impatient. That's his, that's his M.O. I mean, it's nothing new for Kennedy men to chase women unapologetically, but Ted has this built-in danger lust. (laughs) And he drives recklessly. He does things very recklessly. In the driving part, Teddy once outruns a Virginia police lieutenant in his Oldsmobile convertible. But again, not really any consequences. Mm, And because no consequences... No change in behavior. No change in behavior and perhaps a destructive path for the future. Mm -hmm. Let's meet Teddy's bride. Virginia Joan Bennett was born September 2nd, 1936. She's raised in Bronxville, New York. Educated at Catholic schools throughout her childhood. Known for her beauty. Gorgeous woman. But Joan's a lot more than that. She's actually a very accomplished pianist. And her family will foster her musical talents. Joan's dad is an ad executive who commutes to New York City for work and mom stays home with Joan and her sister Candy. Now, Joan has a privileged upbringing, upper middle class, upper class, but it's very modest compared to the Kennedy family style upbringing. And although Joan will never publicly discuss this, her childhood friends have said that both of her parents struggled with issues of alcohol misuse. Joan's mother's issues especially affected Joan's relationship with her. Mom likes to make backhanded comments that will shake Joan's confidence, which makes her very shy and very studious in school. Her sister, Candy, a little bit younger, is the outgoing and social one. But Joan tries to stay out of the spotlight as much as possible. I'm into my studies and my piano and my reading He's a very scholarly sort of kid. <clears throat> Keeping mom from saying mean things to me. I mean, no, know. that that forms the dialogue you have in your head about yourself. When so. you grow up with survival mm-hmm. is your first priority and not love. It makes the world look very different. Mm-hmm. Joan graduates in high school in 1954, goes on to attend Manhattanville College. In college, Joan begins to build her confidence and begins to blossom. She'll major in English. She'll minor in music. She's making new friends, 
and attracting attention of many would-be suitors. She'll work part-time as a model in New York City. And her dad, who's still commuting into the city, does encourage Joan to pursue this profession and even helps Joan break into the business with all of his advertising I was going to say, yeah, he's an ad guy. Well, ad guy comes in, pitches, oh, have you heard about my daughter Joan's? You know, she's such a beauty. And at first, clients and agents are like, oh, God, all right, dad. Tell me more about right. your uh, ugly kid. But Expectations then, set. Right. But then Joan would appear and mm. they'd be blown away by her beauty and poise and finesse and charm. So Joan's successful and she's in demand for modeling jobs. Really, during this time, she'll break into acting. She did some live in-show commercials because that's how television did it then as the Revlon hairspray girl okay. on the TV show, The $64,000 Question. Before the whole cheating scandal thing happened. Sure. The ozone layer says thank you for that. (laughs) Joan was also on a twice a week program. It was like a 15 minute program to fill up a 30 minute block of programming in primetime called Coke Time with Eddie Fisher. Oh my God. Coca-Cola, I'm sure. It is Coca-Cola sponsoring of a 15 minute variety show program. Coke time is a little different these days. Coke time with Eddie Fisher. So what would happen on this variety program, but pretty girls would come on and drink a Coca-Cola while Eddie Fisher, Trashy Divorces alum, Mm -hmm. would sing. And one time Joan is supposed to do a Coke drinking skit with Eddie Fisher, (laughs) but Eddie Fisher, oh, Eddie Fisher, throws a fit because Joan's three inches taller than him. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. Was this before camera magic and different platforms and such? Okay. I guess you couldn't lower her and then sit down and say, like, all she's doing is drinking a Coke, man. It's not, you can just sit her down. Her whole job is to be pretty and drink Coca-Cola. Like, that's Coke it. time with Eddie Fisher. Go sing, man. Fantastic? Go sing. <laughs> all right. So how do we get these lovebirds not together? In Joan's senior year of college at Manhattanville, Gene Kennedy Smith, will introduce Joan to her younger brother, Teddy, who's about 25. Ted is giving a speech at a gymnasium. The family had donated a gym in honor of Kathleen, in honor of Kit Kennedy. And it was supposed to be Jack giving the speech. But Jack convinces Ted to do the speech so Jack could go to a football game instead. Yeah, Kennedy family values are really some. Well, Teddy's mad Mm because Teddy had tickets to the game. (laughs) He was ready to go to that game instead of the gymnasium dedication where Jack had been lined up to speak for as long as the building had. Okay. Jack wins the argument. Ted ends up giving the speech and meeting future bride Joan Bennett. Hmm. Ted is immediately drawn to Joan. She's beautiful and she's Catholic. And ding, ding, ding. She has all the prerequisites for a potential Kennedy wife. Now, Rose, mama has been pressuring Teddy to settle down. I would prefer for you to follow in your brother Bobby's footsteps and marry young and have a lot of kids. Do not be like your older brother Jack, who waited to get married. Joan is a good Catholic girl. So Joan and Teddy's courtship is very chaste. She's a virgin. They always have a chaperone. They are never alone. Ted, at this time in his life, his nickname is Cadillac Eddie. Because he had a reputation of being promiscuous. Because he drove a Cadillac. Cadillac Eddie. 
And uh, Ted will treat Joan differently. She's a strong candidate for marriage. So it's a very different regard that he holds her in, at least publicly. So the two begin seeing each other more and more often. And Ted will take Joan home to Hyannisport. The only parent that's there is Rose because Joe Sr. is off vacationing in the French Riviera. Hmm. Talked a lot about that in mm-hmm. May and Monaco. So Rose sits and takes the time with Joan and talks to her about her Catholic faith and her education and her plans for her family and all the things that a potential mother-in-law might talk to a potential daughter-in-law about. They bond over their shared love of music. Both Rose and Joan are excellent pianists. They have a lot of things in common. They like each other a lot. Rose is almost all in, but Rose has one more thing to do, which is call Manhattanville College to check in with the nuns about Joan's grades and reputation. Hi, nuns. I need you to give me a lowdown on... Can you imagine? I actually can, yeah. Your potential mother-in-law calling your school principal? (laughs) Yeah, these... Kennedys. Rose gets the A-plus from the nuns. Sister Marguerite says she's a fine girl, and Rose gives the go-ahead. And now they're on the fast track to tie the knot. Summer 1958, Ted will propose to Joan in Hyannisport. And the wedding planning, fast and furious. (laughs) Kennedy family decides the wedding is going to be three months after the engagement. It is warp speed. Gotta lock you in. Can't let this one go. Because it's only that three-month period, the couple doesn't really have a lot of time to spend together during their engagement. One of the only times they saw each other was campaigning for Jack's Senate re-election. Any time they spent together is not conducive for them getting to know each other at all. They get together another time during their engagement for an engagement party that Joan's parents give for Joan and Teddy at their Bronxville, New York home. Ted shows up late. Finally bringing an engagement ring to Joan. Because he proposes without an engagement ring. Oh. Back in Hyannisport. So at the engagement party, <laughs> he finally brings a ring. But Teddy's never opened the box. He's never opened the ring. He's never looked at the ring. Because guess who bought the ring? Joe Sr. Mm. Just like Joe Sr. bought Jack's ring for Jacqueline. Teddy's like, oh, here's a ring. He's a terrible patriarch. Joan. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little smarter than your average bear is starting to become nervous about this upcoming wedding. Maybe this courtship has been a little too brief and maybe we don't know each other very well at all. It's a little bothersome to me that Ted doesn't seem overly happy about marrying me or doesn't really go out of his way to make time to see me. And I'm not sure if you've met me, but I'm blonde and I'm really good looking and I was on coke time with Eddie Fisher. Men go out of their way to do things for me and Teddy just doesn't. Joan also notices that every time that Teddy is out campaigning for his older brother, Jack, Ted's always got a crowd of attractive women. Does he? Yeah, around That's him. interesting. And that appears in newspapers and stuff? Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That's... So Joan, smart cookie, goes to her parents and shares her concerns. Young Joan. Mm-hmm. They agree. Mom and dad are like, yeah, probably postponing this is a good idea. Get to know each other better and make sure Catholic marriage is for a lifetime. You want to... Sensible. Very sensible. Joan's dad goes to Joe Sr. Let's push back this wedding date a little bit, friend. Give these kids some time to get to know each other. Joe Kennedy's furious. He will not even consider it. 
He is insulted that the Bennets, those upstart Bennets, would dare be anything less than thrilled that their daughter was marrying into the Kennedy family and you will not embarrass my family. (sighs) Amazing that the tyrant of the Kennedy family would react that way, but there you go. The wedding does go on. (laughs) It's originally planned on November the 29th, 1958. It happens at St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church in Joan's hometown of Bronxville. She's beautiful in her wedding dress. She has a floor-length veil. Her sister is the maid of honor. Jack Kennedy is the best man. Joan might have wanted to have listened to her former single self because the wedding day was picture perfect, but already showed signs of a few future problems. Joan is not allowed to choose the priest that's going to marry them. She wants a small intimate wedding. Oh, Joe (laughs) Sr. is like, nope. But probably the worst thing happens right before the ceremony, although Joan doesn't know till later. Okay. One of the guests at the wedding decide to be real revolutionary in 1958. I'm going to film your wedding so you can always relive this joyous day forever and ever. That means all of the wedding party has on hot mics. Ooh, at a Kennedy function. (laughs) So Joan and Ted had been fitted with, you know, microphones to provide audio for the guests for the video that is being filmed of their perfect, Mm. blissful Kennedy wedding. Remember it for all Mm -hmm. times day. Before the ceremony, Jack and Ted talking on the altar. Hot mic. Jack reassures Teddy, counsels his very nervous younger brother, saying, being married doesn't mean you have to be faithful. He's getting married in 15 minutes, and this is what his older brother... Oh, he's standing at the altar. Joan finds this out when she's watching the video later. Yikes. Yikes. All right, so now these two crazy kids are hitched. Ted's law school schedule doesn't allow the couple to take an immediate honeymoon. They take three days together. You're going to love this. At an estate in the Bahamas owned by Lord Beaverbrook. (laughs) Lord Beaverbrook is the publisher of the Daily Express. He had extended an invitation to the couple to stay at his estate. Want a long weekend in the Bahamas? That's great. Come to Baron Beaverbrook. Beaverbrook Manor. Right. They take him up on the offer, but what the couple doesn't realize is that Lord Beaverbrook is going to be there the whole time. Oh, my God. And expect them to spend all of their time with him. Yeah. You need to eat all your meals with me. This is the daily schedule of the house. So less romantic than perhaps. A little bit. So Ted will graduate from law school June of 1959. The couple will then take their delayed five-week-long honeymoon through... Chile, Argentina, South America. Joan's already pregnant with their first child. Once they return, politics take over their life almost immediately. The entire Kennedy family is working on Jack's presidential campaign. Teddy is Jack's campaign manager for the Western states. February 27th, 1960, the couple's first child was born. It's a daughter. They name her Kara. The young family's happy with their new addition, but they aren't together as often as Ted is on the road campaigning for Jack. Is he often photographed in the papers on this traveling? Well, Ted wants Joan to keep having more babies, Mm -hmm. like even right after Kara's born. Bobby and Ethel, as the elder brother example, already have seven kids at this point, 
And Teddy wants Joan to keep up with Ethel's baby a year schedule. How does Joan feel about this? Well, Ted will tell Joan that he wants nine kids because if his mother hadn't had nine, she wouldn't have had him. So. Oh, my God. That is a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask for Joan. And while she's considering, she stays home with baby number two for six weeks, but then has to join the campaign trail. And she's there and the campaign lifestyle is just not Joan's thing at all. She doesn't have any passion for politics. She doesn't really have any interest in it. She'll describe it as a whirl, going from one small town to the next and meeting people all day long. But Joan, very accepted by the family. She's nicknamed Jonesy. She gets along well with the family and bonds quickly with all of her sisters-in-law. Joan becomes especially close to Jacqueline, who treats Joan lovingly like a younger sister. They share clothes for campaign events. Jacqueline is going to help Joan decorate her home, which if you think about God, all the just milieu of competitiveness, right? And how Jackie felt about that. Jackie and Joan, not competitive. They're not as outgoing as the rest of the family, but they don't compete with each other. So when the raucous football games were going on, when all the nonsense of this competitive family is happening, the two of them are just hanging out in a corner talking about Sartre, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's a very different, they have a good relationship. But Joan is known as the pretty one because she's pretty. And so she's often put into frequent rotation on the campaign trail. And she will often accompany her brother-in-law, Jack, to events. This especially happens while Jacqueline is pregnant. Okay, now Jackie and Joan are close. And so Jackie's always reminding Joan, stay close to Jack. Keep an eye on him when he's with other women. They're going to be around. Just stick close to him. Which Joan, being very fond of her sister-in-law, does. But while Joan is busy babysitting Jack, nobody's keeping an eye on Teddy. And Teddy's going to take advantage of that. Ted is frequently with other women. And although the press never reports on the Kennedy men's womanizing, rumors will always make it back to all of their wives, including Joan. Rose couldn't have picked a better daughter-in-law because Joan just refuses to believe them. She'll deny the truth or makes peace with it. She takes a page out of Rose's playbook because Joe Sr. is a terrible philanderer. And Rose is like, he's my perfect husband. And close your eyes and think of England, I Mm -hmm. guess. So Jack Kennedy does win the election, and it had been decided that Bobby would be his attorney general. It was determined that Ted would then run for Jack's vacant Massachusetts Senate seat. You know who determined all this? I can barely put together a grocery list, and these people are planning out, like, (laughs) ultimate power. Okay. Now, Joan's a little miffed because this plan that Daddy Joe made for, hey, son, you're going to be a senator for Massachusetts, is very different than what Ted had promised Joan. Ted had promised Joan that he wants to practice private law. He doesn't want to go into politics. He wants to do something different than his brothers are doing. But his family has very different ideas. So their life directed down a path that Joan in no way agreed to, signed up for, or had expected or was prepared for. Teddy's campaign begins immediately. Teddy will become the next senator from Massachusetts and will remain in that same role until his death in 2009. 
Oh, Jack Kennedy. During his presidency, Jack Kennedy calls Joan the dish. She's got looks along with her piano playing. She's useful. She's the dish. She's useful in charming voters. The Camelot years, as brief as they were, were very glamorous and exciting for all the members of the Kennedy family. And Joan doesn't really like politics. Like, it's not her thing. But she does like having a brother-in-law in the White House. That's kind of fun. Yeah. But the dish, God bless Joan, will begin to resent that all of her publicity in that White House will focus superficially on her beauty. And, oh, isn't Teddy great? It's never about her own interests, her own talents, her own intelligence. Couple's second kid, Edward Moore Kennedy Jr., was born on September 26th, 1961. Teddy's rarely home. He's often traveling when he's in town. He's not getting home until 10 or 11. Joan, naturally, feels isolated from her husband. She's constantly trying to find ways to bond with him and be a priority. But Ted, interested in his work or campaigning or enjoying other time with women, whether they be one-time honeys or actually long-term affairs, continuing on with the one-time honeys. Shortly after Edward Jr.'s birth, Joe Kennedy, Joe Sr., will have a debilitating stroke, and Ted takes it particularly hard. Ted's going to take on a lot of the responsibility for Joe's care. He'll choose his specialists and treatments. And although Joe's stroke affected Ted privately, his public life and duties will continue on as normal. He's a popular senator. He's young, he's handsome, he's charismatic. He's the younger brother of the president. He gets 5,000 letters a week. Okay, a that's, week. That's weird. Ted enjoys the popularity and attention, but even Ted knows that this is probably a lot to do with my brother. It has not as much to do with me and a lot more to do with my influential president brother. And I think you'll find, poor Ted, like kind of, like it's a constant theme in Ted Kennedy's life, is the long shadow that Joe Jr., that Jack, that Bobby cast over his life, and it inescapable. Like, you are in a Kennedy cage of your own creation by privilege of your birth, and that shadow just never goes away. But Joan, for her part, remains upbeat and tries to privately embrace this supportive woman-behind-the-man persona. But behind the scenes, her resolve is kind of starting to crumble. Ted is more and more distant, and the rumors and the stories about his womanizing are increasing and becoming way more common and way more blatant and in-her-face. And in the spring of 1963, Joan, five months pregnant, will miscarry for the first time. She's devastated, and her feelings are just ex exacerbated mm -hmm. by the publicity reporting the miscarriage. Yeah. Which is... Uh, it's terribly cruel. Terribly cruel. It also makes things like, worse. I'm, I'm sure the tone of it was not, but just, yeah, to have to do that in public. Well, it makes things worse for Joan, and that Ethel and Jackie are pregnant at the same time, and would go on to have healthy babies. Mm -hmm. So... That's highly publicized. There to right. babies who came to term and Jones that didn't. And this will not be her last miscarriage. The next year, Jones going to miscarry again. And the personal loss of these pregnancies is made worse just inside Joan because of the disappointment it causes Ted. He's open about his dissatisfaction in her. Oh, go oh mm -hmm. so he's blaming her. That's great. You're not providing me with a big family. Oh, my God. Hey, Henry VIII. Hey, Teddy the Nine. Oh, uh, that's right? awful. 
She, Joan will tell Jackie we've been married four years and Ted can't understand why we don't have four kids. This all seems healthy. Well, it's going to get unhealthier. Oh, really? Yeah, because Jack Kennedy is shot down in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, and life will once again shift dramatically for Teddy Kennedy as well as Joan. So Joan adores Jack, and she is naturally devastated like the rest of the family. But Joan doesn't cope in the same way that the Kennedys do because the Kennedys don't wallow. Kennedys don't cry. They don't talk about their grief. They don't emotionally support each other. And how can we help? No, it's buck up and carry on. They swallow their grief. They move on. And that's just not Joan. She can't swallow her grief in the same way that Ted and the rest of the family does. So in order to swallow her grief... Joan will be swallowing cocktails. Mm, She will wash it down. Okay. And Ted's too busy and not home enough to notice that Joan is really suffering. I mean, in fairness, I do think the Kennedy men were also washing down all of their pathos. Like, it's a big drinking family. Well, also a lot of adultery on their part. Mm -hmm. The women can't go have affairs. And if they do, they have to happen like Jacqueline in different countries. Right. All right. Teddy will decide the best way to honor Jack is to, of course, continue working for Jack's causes, and Teddy will move ahead with his 1964 re-election campaign, which leaves Joan more alone and spiraling deeper down. So far, so good. This is a great story. No, it gets worse. On June 19th, 1964, seven months after JFK's death, Teddy gets on a plane to the Democratic State Convention in Springfield, Massachusetts. Four others are on the plane with Ted Kennedy, and it crashes 15 miles from its destination. You don't hear about this plane crash because there's a car crash in 1969 that sort of overshadows this, but this plane crashes into an apple orchard, and the branches of the trees almost act as knives. Oh, God. Slicing open the front of the plane. The pilot and Ted's friend and legislative aide, Ed Moss, both killed on impact. Ted is injured. He's got a broken back, several broken ribs, and a punctured lung. And when he tries to escape the plane before it catches fire, he realizes his legs aren't working. The other passengers that have more minor injuries, the ones that were sitting more in the back, run for help. Police and ambulance soon do come to the crash site. And Ted is given the option. Hey, you can have surgery to fix your broken back or be on complete bed rest and fully incapacitated for six months to let all your bones heal on their own. Joe Kennedy has had a stroke. He's unable to speak. But Joe Kennedy here will grunt and make nah, nah sounds when presented with the options for his son. Ted knows this is his dad's way of saying absolutely not to the surgery, because if you remember, Jack had back surgery, which caused him constant pain and the need for drugs and doctor feel good and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. Maybe Joe's also thinking about the disastrous surgery that he will have forced upon his daughter, Rosemary, as well, that leaves her an invalid. So six months of bed rest. Maybe this gives him a chance to grow closer with his wife. Well, (laughs) Ted agrees that his father's wishes are what he will go with and chooses to let his bones heal naturally and he's on six months of bed rest. But Joan's not there tending to her husband. Where's Joan? I don't know. She's on the campaign trail. Oh, for Subbing in for Teddy. Because he's unable to do so. I don't mean to laugh. It's terrible. It's terrible. Joan rises to the challenge. She's got dedication. She's very successful. She becomes very at ease and confident with the crowds. 
She gives speeches. She shakes hands. And Joan really is a I need to be needed kind of person. So she's thriving on this purpose. She's come a long way from that shy, uncomfortable girl just a few years earlier. And Teddy wins in a landslide. There must always be a Kennedy in Massachusetts. Well, do you think Teddy's appreciative of this? I'm sure. I'm sure he is. You're like, wow, Joan, you really did me a solid there. Thank you. After Joan's support and valiant efforts and undeniable success, even after Jack's death and his own brush with death, Ted's roving eye only gets worse. Joan is eventually going to go to her sister-in-law, Jacqueline, for advice. And Jackie tells her that Ted and the entire Kennedy family love her and think she's a wonderful wife, and she just needed to accept that Ted had this addiction. Joan is not able to do this, (laughs) and her self-esteem is really going to take a hit. Despite their marital troubles, Joan will give birth to their third child, Patrick, on July 14th, 1967. Ted's affairs continue to increase. Newspapers will report that Ted is having an affair with a married woman. And Joan will finally break down and go to her mother-in-law, Rose, for advice. Rose, for her part, is not going to give her much sympathy right. about having a husband who perpetually cheats after what she has had to put up with Yeah, Joe. I think that advice is, yes, this is what marriage is. Well, Rose encourages Joan not to believe the stories. And Joan tries, quite unsuccessfully, to convince herself that none of those other women mattered. She will try to convince herself that none of those other women matter by plunging herself further and further into alcoholism. This is so sad. In the 60s, though, she wants to improve her self-esteem and she has a good-looking gal, so she decides to shorten her hemlines. She knows she's attractive and she wants some attention that maybe she's not getting. Two can play at that game, man. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting attention from you. I got good-looking legs. So Joan shows up at a White House dinner in the sequined mini dress. And all the headlines are how inappropriate it was. Great. It's terrible. On June 5th, 1968, there is another tragic turn for the Kennedy family. As Bobby Kennedy was shot in Los Angeles while campaigning, Ted learns about the shooting from a live news broadcast, like so many other people did. Bobby's assassination will break Ted in a way that Jax does not. Ted starts to age rapidly. His demeanor changes. He is the last male kid. Uh, like all, I don't, I don't know what Ted Kennedy was thinking. I mean, I think they all ended up feeling like, "Am I next? <sighs> Who's left?" I mean, it's it's terrible. Ted's unable to deal, and Joan kind of unable to cope as well with Bobby's death. She is way too devastated to be at his burial at Arlington. She disappeared after the funeral. Nobody knows where she went. Just out. Speaking of disappearing acts, in the months following Bobby's death, Ted is going to spend more time on his boat with his mistress. So that's good. Joan will spend more time drinking. She says it's easier to drink than to confront her husband or face her pain, which is a really recognizable feeling. So how uncomfortable is all of that? Pretty uncomfortable. But they don't slow down their public appearances together. Because political events and dedications and the life of the political couple still keeps them really busy. So when they're in public together, they look like this beautiful, happy family. In addition to all of this really taking a toll on Teddy, now Bobby's kids are also relying on Uncle Teddy, who'd become de facto dad, 
to now both Jack's kids and Bobby's kids. Because that was Bobby's kids original. That was Bobby originally for Jack's kids. Now everything's on Teddy. Joan, unable to control her drinking, and her drunken behavior is noticeable to everyone. The Kennedy family understands she has a problem with alcohol, but they're embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it. Let's tap that down. In the spring of 1969, Joni's happy to learn that she's pregnant again. Her happiness, though, was very short-lived when on July 18th, 1969, her husband, Teddy Kennedy, drunkenly Mm. drives his car up a small bridge into Poocha Pond on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts. Ted swims free, but his passenger, the 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny, did not. Ted does not get help for Kopechny or report the incident until 10 a.m. the following morning. Mary Jo is found dead, trapped in Kennedy's car. Because the car had overturned, due to the position of her body, it was determined that Kopechny did not drown, but actually suffocated slowly in the car. Agonizing. No, it's a it's a terrible story. Had Teddy sought help immediately, potentially she could have been saved. We are going to do a follow-up on Patreon this week about Chappaquiddick. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. It does pertain to Ted and Joan's trashy divorce, but we'll yeah go into that on Patreon this week. But the Kennedy machine, man, gets to work. And Joan's pregnant, so nobody tells Joan anything besides just stay upstairs. She will say it was the worst experience of her life. Joan is not included in any of the planning, although her presence is required. Mm -hmm. She's an essential part of the plan, but nobody clues her in on what it is. Her role as steadfast, loyal, loving wife is crucial to repairing the damage that Ted has done to his legacy Mm -hmm. in just a few short hours. Joan is supposed to be on bed rest because of her pregnancy, but the Kennedys need her to snap into action. You got to help clean up this mess that Teddy's made. So she'll do everything they ask. God bless her. She accompanies Ted to Mary Jo Kopechny's funeral a few weeks after the oh incident. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Now it's a, we'll talk about, it's terrible. After the incident, Ted's public approval ratings are at their lowest. And I there's an inquest into the wreck. Yeah, this should have ended his career. This, I mean, anyway. While it's all going terrible, add a little bit more terrible, Joan miscarries for the third time in six years. Around the same time, Joan learns that her father had asked her mother for a divorce. We're not done. In November of 1969, and I think most of the family blames Teddy for this, Joe Sr. will suffer another stroke and die. After Chapquiddick, Joe Kennedy Mm -hmm. doesn't eat anymore. He just sort of gives like, this is, it is a terrible, sad, broken, very ill man that just gives up on any kind of will to live. So the compounding of all of these tragedies, another miscarriage, my parents are getting divorced, my father-in-law's dead, my husband, like... Oh, no, every support system in her life is suddenly, like, yanked out. That's... So Jonah's affected. Mm. She's shocked. She's traumatized. She's falling apart. Mm -hmm. But the Kennedys... No crying. Mm -hmm. This is distasteful. All this frailty... You can't, they turn away from her. They kind of abandon Joan. And Joan later tells an interviewer after Chappaquiddick, I just didn't care anymore. I saw no future. That's when I truly became an alcoholic. So after Chappaquiddick, 
I mean, the marriage is done. That right. is the, she's, she's trapped, but that's yeah. the death knell of the marriage. And divorce, though, is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's not an acceptable option. So Ted and Joan will live mostly separate lives. But ending the marriage, frowned upon, can't do it in the church. It would hurt Ted's political future. So poor Joan, it's, it's terrible. Now, she has a lot to lose by divorcing Ted, but she can't ignore the womanizing rumors and his lack of interest. And she'll sort of branch out into her own, let me attempt to get my own life. She'll start to perform publicly, even with the Philadelphia Orchestra at a fundraiser. She'll begin pursuing her own interests. I don't want to be just a senator's wife. I am a mm-hmm. dynamic, creative human, yep. all on my own. Fully formed, three-dimensional. Well, she's still also suffering heavily from alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So Patrick, her son, says, quote, My mom struggled mightily with mental illness and alcoholism. She, like the rest of my family, was enormously impacted by the violent murders of my uncles and ensuing emotional impact of that trauma. I know she didn't choose to suffer in the way that she suffered. This disease was something that took over. And because it was so stigmatized and discriminated against, she never got the kind of early active intervention and support that, frankly, still aren't available to many people. So as the 1972 presidential election will near, the speculation of Ted's possible candidacy becomes overwhelming. And Joan has no interest in Ted. Please. There's a disastrous 60 Minutes interview. Ted decides against running. Ted decides against running, but Ted couldn't actually make a case for running himself. Right. He was asked, like, why do you want to be president? And Which is the question anyone would naturally ask you, and he yeah, didn't really have he a had, answer. He had no answer. Like, yeah, this is a, it's a very famous moment, and uh, like political scientists reference this all the time. He will go on to say it's the fear of assassination. He feels it's the wrong time. Possibly on the flip, he maybe is not ready to face the scrutiny over Chappaquiddick. This decision is a wise one. In 1973, their 12-year-old son, Ted Jr., is diagnosed with bone cancer. He has his right leg amputated above the knee. And Teddy's cancer will actually expose more weaknesses in the relationship between Ted and Joan because they have very different opinions about how that child should be parented during his illness and recovery. So Teddy responds to his son's illness by indulging him. He brings in famous athletes and guests to entertain him. If we keep Teddy always focused on good things, he won't have any spare moments to focus on his illness. And Teddy tells his mom, like, I'm so tired, but I can't tell dad. I don't really want any more entertainment for a while. Joan will confront Ted on her son's behalf. Ted, doesn't like being told what to do, lashes back out at Joan So by the time Ted Jr. had fully recovered, (laughs) parents' relationship is just D-O-N-E done. Okay, but he fully recovered. I mean, I I was afraid this was going in a a tragic direction yet again, like everything else in the story. So that's great news. Ted Jr. is okay. The marriage is fully white. Sounds like it had been pretty. (laughs) Completely deteriorated. Uh So Joan, by this point, has begun to seek treatment in private facilities for her alcoholism But the press is relentless in their coverage of her treatment sessions. Just like the family did a few years before, the press increasingly begins to turn against Joan and will write unfavorable stories about her. In April of 1976, 
Joan's mother was found dead in her Florida home from alcoholism. Mm. So this is a wake-up call for Joan. She realizes that she needs to separate herself from the things that are wanting to make her drink. So she'll move out of the family home. She'll rent a condo in Boston. And the kids stay with Ted and visit their mom on the weekends. But even during this time, her sobriety is a roller coaster ride. She's sober. There's a relapse. She's sober. There's a relapse. Mm -hmm. She's struggling with it for a number of years. Sure. As 1980 gets closer, re-election year, Joan will find herself willing and able to help Ted. And this is unusual now because their separation is known about. Ted and those running his campaign figure if the public accepted that Joan had forgiven him for everything, they could too. Okay. Joan wanted to do it on her own behalf to prove her worth and refute her image as a hopeless drunk. So everybody's got a little bit different motivation in this pile. The campaign is grueling, but Joan will keep up with the schedule. And despite her support, Ted's public image was, in fact, too damaged to win the Democratic nomination. Shortly after the failed campaign, Ted and Joan announced their plans to divorce after 23 years of marriage. 23 years of misery. Something like that. Now, Joan, after the divorce, is able to sort of reinvent herself and pursues a life of her own kind of for the first time. Mm -hmm. She'll earn a master's degree in education from Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She becomes involved in music education for students. And in 1992, she will publish a book called The Joy of Classical Music, A Guide for You and Your Family. Hmm. Joan will continue to struggle with alcohol and in her later years had some arrests pertaining to alcohol misuse and some drunk driving as well. Despite this, though, Joan becomes this much-needed public advocate for people dealing with mental health issues and alcohol abuse long before it was popular or okay to do so. Right. She will maintain a strong relationship with her kids. She will never remarry. Can't blame her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the early 2000s, the Kennedy kids, feeling that Joan is unable to properly manage and care for herself, will fight a legal battle for her to have a guardian oversee her finances and medical decisions. Mm -hmm. So Joan eventually agrees to a court-ordered guardianship. In 2005-2006, Joan will fight and beat breast cancer. Hmm. So despite many injuries and illnesses due to her alcohol abuse, including kidney failure, Joan Bennett Kennedy is still alive today. Wow. She and Ethel Kennedy are the only remaining survivors of the original Camelot Kennedys. Did not realize. Joan Bennett. Keep hell of a woman. After his divorce from Joan, Teddy's career continues, even thrives. His Mm -hmm. personal life continues to be filled with scandal and questionable behavior. And it's kind of until he marries Victoria Reggie in 1992. Prior to this remarriage, Ted's partying and womanizing lands him in the media all the time. A few of his more embarrassing missteps in 1989. Paparazzi will stalk him on vacation in Europe and photograph him having sex on a motorboat. Oh. There was an infamous night in 1991 where Teddy is in Palm Beach and will visit a local bar with his son Patrick and his nephew, William Kennedy Smith. Yeah. Smith and a woman he met at a bar went out on a beach, were sexual, things happened. Yeah. William Kennedy Smith said it was consensual. The woman said it was definitely not. Yeah. And in fact was rape. And the case becomes a media frenzy. Mm-hmm. 
So while not directly impacted, Teddy is around, becomes the frequent butt of jokes, perceived as the Palm Beach boozer. Uh, he's a lout. He's right. tabloid grotesque. Now, this apparently impacted his ability. Like, he had no standing to challenge Clarence Thomas's appointment to the court amid all of Clarence Thomas's issues. It's rough. Um, Newsweek says Ted Kennedy was a living symbol of the family's flaws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, though, Ted Kennedy really cleaned up his act and his image. He becomes known as the Lion of the Senate. Mm-hmm. He's integral in passing a great deal of important legislation. In 2006, Ted will release a children's book from the view of his dog. It's called Splash, My Senator nope. and Me. Nope. Yep. Nope. <laughs> a dog's eye view of Washington, D.C. Okay. I see where you're going with that. Uh-huh. There's a problem. Yep. Ted, just like Joan, will continue to have a strong relationship with their three kids. By all accounts, his marriage to Victoria Reggie was happy and stable. In May of 2008, Ted Kennedy was diagnosed with brain cancer He fought it valiantly, but eventually treatment does become ineffective. In July 2008, HBO began showing a documentary tribute to Kennedy's life called Teddy, in his own words. In his last few weeks, Ted Kennedy was in a wheelchair. He could barely speak, but consistently said, I've had a wonderful life. Edward Moore Kennedy died August 25th, 2009 at his Hyannisport home. His funeral services were attended by former presidents and first ladies senators, congressmen, numerous celebrities, and professional athletes, and also in attendance, Joan. Mm. Ted Kennedy was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Kennedy spent decades working on healthcare policy in Mm -hmm. America, but, you know, really sadly, he died, I think, just months before the Affordable Care Act was voted on and became law. I don't know. The irony to me is that Ted Kennedy, who was so worried about not being able to live up to his brothers, living in the shadow of his brothers, accomplished more than any brother he had in his lifetime, legislatively, Mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting flip. Tragic about the marriage, though, like that we have talked at length, I think mostly on Patreon, about what that generation of the Kennedy family did to the women who married into it. It's terrible. She's a prop. Yeah. Poor Joan. That is the trashy divorce, courtship, marriage, trashy divorce of Ted Kennedy and Joan Bennett Kennedy. If there are trash cans to award, I don't know how many there are because they're all underneath the water in Pooch Pond. Yeah. Undetermined that's, amount. That's rough. Yeah. Well... There you go. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Season 11, episode one in the books. Oh, look at that. We're going to have a great time in season 11. We're coming back next Sunday with more trashy divorces. We'll be back this Wednesday. You've got a good trashy breakup for us, Stacey. Mm-hmm. Yep. In the meantime, if you need more trash candy, don't forget to check out bit.ly slash trash candy. That takes you to a free section of our Patreon content. And we do try to recycle those and refresh them every few weeks. I just posted earlier today one about Kick Kennedy, Mm -hmm. who we covered on Patreon sometime last year that related to the Mitford sisters and Chatsworth. Sure. Kind of interesting. If you want a little bit of free stuff, bit.ly slash trash candy. For all of your Kennedy deep dives. 
If you want almost 700 more episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash trashy divorces. I'm in a new series now on spiderwebs called Grab Your Hankies that continues the trashy royals. We talked about Henry I and Henry II of England last week, which was a tremendous amount of trashy fun. It was fun. Yes. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us today and spending your time with us. Y'all are the very best (laughs) until we meet again. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Not Camelot trashy though. God, no. Not like that. Not like that. Big love y'all. Keep it trashy. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all